You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Social Emotional Learning and the Brain by Marilee Springer. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, I wanted to share just a little win of the week in my SLP life, and it's related to the podcast, so I'm really excited to share it. So I had an IEP a couple of days ago, and this was not an annual, and it wasn't a try. It was just a meeting that we called to discuss some difficult behavior we were seeing and trying to support as best as we could in the classroom. And you know, we were talking about strategies for the child to help them calm down and regulate themselves a little bit better. And the teacher was amazing. And she was talking about the many, many, many different things she was doing in her classroom that really dovetailed beautifully with social emotional learning in the brain. She was talking about her calm down corner she had, how she had a special calm down box that was just for the child, full of things that they like to do and how she would switch things out pretty often so that there was something new in there. And I was just like really blown away by this teacher because on top of trying to teach, you know, like 25 kids to also be constantly thinking about how you can help this one child in particular. I was just amazed. As I was hearing them talk about how sometimes a visual chart is really helpful for calming down, I thought, hey, I think I have a resource for this. (laughs) And I think Laura made it. (laughs) So, you know, at the end of the meeting, I shared my screen and I said, hey, I just wanted to tell everybody about this great resource I have, our calm down worksheet. And you know, there was like six people in the meeting and the parents were excited about it. The teacher was immediately on board. The RSP teacher was like, this is exactly what I was talking about. And it was just amazing to have the situation where there was a need and I had something that could fill the need right away. So I was so proud. And I did mention the podcast. I said, Oh, this was made for my podcast. And I wasn't trying to promote the podcast. I was just, you know, it was in the corner, really big SLP book club. So yeah, I just kind of mentioned it. And, you know, at the end of the meeting, the meeting was done, I sent the worksheet to the teacher and to the parents. And the one of the parents responded and said they were excited to hear about the podcast and they were going to listen, <laughs> which I was like blown away. That was so kind. Yeah. You know, it was a double win of the week. I felt like the podcast reached somebody who was interested and who wanted to listen. And that was great. And also I was able to support the student in a way that they really needed. And I had the perfect thing for them. And it was visual and focused on behaviors we wanted to eliminate and focused on replacement behaviors. So anybody who has a situation like that, I say, use the resource. And something we also talked about in the meeting was the importance of having this worksheet across all settings. So we are going to have one copy in the classroom, one copy at home, one copy in the speech room. And when I sent it to the teacher, I said, you know, this works best if everything is laminated and put on Velcro dots, especially with this student who their needs are kind of changing and what works one week might not work the next week. So you might want to be able to swap out either behaviors that you're not wanting or behaviors that are good replacement behaviors. And I told the teacher, like, I know that's a lot to ask to laminate everything and set these up so we can just glue it in 
and switch as needed. And she said, no, I'm happy to Velcro and I'm happy to laminate. Yeah. So it was nice. It felt like a really collaborative moment. And I'm really hopeful that it will be helpful. Anyway, that's my win of the week. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. For those of you that don't know, Adrian's talking about the Calm Down Plan, the free, it's a two-page worksheet that you can do that we created for the book Smart But Scattered. And you can grab that either in my Laura G. SLP TPT store or on our Patreon. You can get it free both places and we will link to that in the show notes. I love that. I feel like when I was creating some of these resources, that's exactly the situation I was picturing was being able to provide something where maybe it's not even really our responsibility, but sometimes the speech therapist is just the person who has the answer and can say, here, why don't we try this and, you know, give something to the teachers? Because like you said, teachers have 25 kids that they're worrying about and they don't always have the time to figure out a, a plan for each one. So it does sound like that teacher is just absolutely amazing though. I agree. And honestly, this was a situation where I felt like regulation was sort of the center of what we were talking about. But regulation, especially emotional regulation, is sort of a gray area. It's like, is that speech's responsibility? Is that the OT's responsibility? And in this case, the OT was not involved. And so I felt like, you know what, I don't mind stepping up. I have a great solution. And it works so well for the team. So Oh, I love that. Yay. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. And then we'll be back with this week's chapter. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are talking about Chapter 8, or the conclusion of social-emotional learning and the brain. So this, although it's a conclusion, and you normally think the conclusion is just sort of a summary, I found there was still some new information here, and it was still a good read. So don't give up. Keep reading. Read all the way to Chapter 8. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly what Chapter 8 was talking about is people, not programs, and the positive impact of social-emotional learning. So the chapter opens up with a story about five parents who are upset with a fourth-grade teacher who's pressuring the kids to do well on state testing. The kids are really stressed out. They think the teacher isn't going to change. The parents are like, oh, this teacher, this is just how she is. So they met with the superintendent to ask if something could be done about the teacher, you know, going pretty high up. And maybe they were thinking this was the case of the principal bullying the teachers about test scores, and then the teachers in turn bullied the children. And the conclusion to this story was that the superintendent did talk to the school staff, and that was what was happening. It was a trickle-down effect where the principal was being so intense about raising the test scores that the teacher was super stressed out, and then her stress kind of, you know, got passed down to the children who were then stressed out. 
So once the source of the problem was identified, they could change the situation and things could be improved. But you know, this kind of gave me some flashbacks, Laura. Did you ever have moments where state testing was incredibly important and really emphasized when you were growing up? Yes, state testing was important when I was growing up, but I think that things have changed so much where so much of the focus is on state testing and teachers aren't really as free to be really creative and those magical teachers we've kind of talked about. I don't know. I feel bad for kids nowadays because there is so much more of an emphasis on state testing than there was when we were kids. But I mean, I know that I got some scholarships in high school from state testing. So all I have are happy memories. (laughs) Oh, I had some memories of some teachers being really like, make sure you eat a good breakfast tomorrow morning. We're doing state (laughs) testing. And then, you know, because of how we are, obviously, speech therapists, super type A. Even when I was in like fifth grade, I was going home to my mom like, mom, I really need a good breakfast tomorrow. (laughs) And I think she actually probably made me like toast and eggs where I normally would have cereal. But I felt the stress, you know, and then I probably stressed my mom. (laughs) So that was just a little situation they talked about. And then You know, Mara Lee, the author, she also talked about how bullied people bully other people and how if there's a problem happening in one class that's not happening in other classes, it most likely has to do with that teacher alone. So if, you know, one teacher has a problem with a student, but none of the other teachers do, it probably is on the teacher to do some changing. And she pointed out that teachers can be stressed because they're being bullied So students can also bully teachers, and so can parents and principals. Um, Who's been there? (laughs) (laughs) She said that pressure to do well on state testing can create a lot of stress for administrators, and then the teachers, and then also the students. And then she talked about how one time she was asked to create a pep rally, since she was the cheerleading coach, I think. Uh Uh-huh to create a pep rally that focused on doing well on the state test. And so she was talking about how they had to change their cheers to like, go, go, get a 99th percentile or whatever you're talking about. (laughs) Eat a good breakfast and bring sharpened pencils. And that probably stressed her out. And that was a little bit of the trickle down. So addressing teacher stress is crucial for creating the culture and climate needed to get the most gains that you can from using social emotional learning. And then secondary traumatic stress is the emotional duress that results when an individual hears about the firsthand trauma experiences of others. So this is stress that comes from basically being the roles that we all have as support to students and listening to and working with students who've experienced trauma can cause educators to experience the trauma secondhand. And cognitive behavioral strategies and mindfulness have been shown to be helpful with this kind of stress. So if you are working in a school with a lot of kids who are traumatized or if, you know, there's a situation, don't be afraid to lean on some of the resources that we've talked about throughout the book. Compassion fatigue is similar to secondary traumatic stress, but sometimes it's called burnout. But burnout is more serious than compassion fatigue. So in order to prevent things from getting to the point where you're burned out, you can unload some of your fatigue by journaling, meditating, exercising doing more things outside and leaning on other people. Decision fatigue can happen to anybody, including students. And this is that feeling when you can't really make a decision because your brain feels fried. Mm -hmm. And decision making has been shown to require the same willpower as turning down a donut. (laughs) 
which, wow, I can relate to this because just yesterday I dropped my daughter off and then on my way home, I was like passing by the street that our local donut shop is on and I was totally like, should I get a donut? No. Should I get a donut? No. And then all of a sudden I was just turning right into the parking lot oh. and I got a donut. Oh, yeah. But it was amazing. It was a maple bar. It's <laughs> really good. <laughs> I'm a glazed twist girl. But oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't had a donut in a long time because I don't work in a school physically <laughs> anymore. Oh, yeah. It's like donuts are prevalent. Oh, donuts. Or where I worked a lot of those delicious sweet bread, like conchas. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You know, this decision fatigue is so real. And I know that days where I was very stressed and having to make a lot of decisions and being in the school, and then I had a very long drive home where I passed a lot of fast food restaurants. You know, that's the type of thing where by the end of the day, you totally break down and you cannot make one more good mm. decision. You just go for whatever's easy. You become really impulsive. Like about dinner. Yeah. It's like I could not yeah. possibly make myself dinner right now with the healthy stuff I have at home. I really need to go to McDonald's right now. It's rough. Oh, yeah. I feel that. Definitely. I cannot say that decision fatigue was the reason I got the donut, but <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of handy excuse. Teachers apparently make about 1500 educational decisions every single day, which was really a surprising statistic to hear. Educators need to take weekends off. So don't be grading papers, SLPs. Please do not be working on reports over the weekend. Uh oh. I know it's easier said than done, but my opinion has always been if you cannot get all of your work done within school hours, something needs to change. You need to offload something. You need to look at your time management because really our time at home is our time to unwind. If you have reports at night when you're supposed to be relaxing, it just, I think it really perpetuates the problem, makes it really hard to reserve your energy and boundaries are important. Yeah. And by my last year working in the schools, and I'm not saying I'll never be back in the schools. I probably will at some point, who knows? I was really not just taking a stand for myself, but helping other people. I was supervising a CF and a few things. First of all, my district had done a survey of all the related services staff to see how they're spending their time. And our supervisors got on our case, SLPs, because we were not standing up for ourselves. They said PTs, OTs were reporting that for one assessment, they were spending seven or eight hours and SLPs, some were reporting that for a whole assessment, they were spending one hour. One hour. We're talking the assessment, scoring the tests, writing the report. So we were under-reporting. And that's why our caseloads, we weren't advocating for ourselves. It's not, we weren't standing up for ourselves. And I don't know what goes on with SLPs where also we have this thing where it's like, well, I, it has to all get done. So I have to do it on my spare time. Right. And I was, the CF I was supervising, it's like she was scared that they were going to fire her. And I was like, do you know how valuable you are to this school district? They need SLPs so bad. And you are, you have such a coveted skill you could get a job anywhere. You need to stand up for yourself because they're not going to fire you. You say, I couldn't see those students because I needed to yeah. get these reports done. You know, so these students are owed time and it's not really on you if it's not in your workday. Right. Definitely. And I will tell you, I just did 
a freelance assessment for a different district through my contract company. And at the end of the day, it took about seven and a half hours between the assessment, report writing, and attending the IEP. So one hour, when you told me that, I was like, oh, are they a magician? <laughs> How is that happening? <laughs> I don't know if they, you know what? Here's the deal. The SLPs yeah. were so stressed and so pressed for time that they weren't even taking the time to read those questions <laughs> and understand what it they're was like asking. another survey. It was probably, <laughs> I know, they're probably just like, bop, bop, bop. Oh my you know, gosh. Just not even <clears throat> paying attention. Absolutely. Anyway, just take that with a grain of salt and consider your time management and if you're giving yourself enough time to recharge. You can also simplify your meals by stocking up on healthy snacks and pre-planning menus so you don't fall into that trap that Laura just described of getting <laughs> McDonald's every day and deciding what you want to wear the night before can be helpful. You can create a simple and predictable morning routine where you can just put your brain on autopilot and kind of save your mental energy for solving your more challenging problems later in the day. And there's another story that illustrates how emotions affect decision making. So Mara Lee talks about how she was grading papers really late one night and got to the last paper around 1030 p.m. She was super tired and the student had not been putting forth a lot of effort lately. So she just kind of gave him the grade and moved on. But the next day she couldn't find the cover sheet with his grade on it when she was passing back all the papers. So she just said like, OK, I'll grade it real quick during class and I'll have it to you by the end of class. And she gave it back to him. And at that point, she noticed the cover page with his original grade kind of like peeking out of her bag. And she looked at it and realized that last night at the end of the day, she was exhausted and she had given him a grade of C. But today, as she had graded his paper in class where she was more energized, she had given him a B. This just goes to show that a teacher's mental state can really affect their grading and they're not always impartial. So while we're familiar with the term ACE or adverse childhood experience, you can counteract the results of ACEs with something called PACEs or positive advantageous childhood experiences. And these kinds of experiences can look like close friends, close neighbors, comforting beliefs, a positive regard for school, caring teachers, maybe a trusted caregiver, a feeling of safety, fun, and a predictable home routine. So I loved this information. I thought it was really positive and sort of reassuring because when you hear a lot of information about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, you can start to feel, I don't know, it makes me feel kind of depressed because I'm like, oh man, these are things really outside of our control. If a child is experiencing food insecurity or violence or poverty, but to hear that you can counteract that with positive advantageous childhood experiences, I felt like, wow, that's putting a little bit of control back. And they had some results from a study that showed that four or more ACEs can increase negative health outcomes later in life, including depression, higher body mass index, and higher rates of smoking. But the research showed that even if someone had four or more ACEs, a high number of advantageous experiences could reduce the negative health effects later in life. So this really goes to show you that you know, we can really make a difference, even though it feels like a drop in the bucket. If you are there for the student and you try, you can really help them. Yeah. After looking at the physical health of the participants in the study, which included exercise, sleep habits, smoking, and diet, plus their mental health and cognitive abilities, such as executive functioning abilities, level of stress, depression, and ability to deal with challenging situations, the researchers found that the absence of positive experiences led to poor adult health 
no matter how many aces the individual had. So having positive experiences definitely outweighs how many aces you've had. Although a child's family situation was the cause of many adverse childhood experiences in the study, the researchers found that the importance of other adults in a child's life outside of the parents, like extended family members, teachers, neighbors, friends, speech-language pathologists, (laughs) and youth leaders, all helped to increase the number of counter-ACEs and boosted lifelong health. So the message for educators is clear. We can make a major difference in the present and future quality of life for our students. So you can just look at this book and use so many of the strategies to build relationships and teach empathy to help create positive experiences in the classroom. And this will help the students to feel they belong and that they are safe. There's an additional article titled The Power of Being Seen that tells the story of how a middle school in Nevada turned itself around by getting to know students through an effort that involved every teacher and every student. The school started a social-emotional learning program in 2012 and has seen improvements that include higher attendance, higher test scores, higher graduation rates, and better mental health. And they used a strategy called teacher-student connection, where all of the staff would gather in a room where there were posters hanging on the wall listing every student's name. Next to the names were columns with headings like name and face, something personal, personal and family story, and academic standing. Teachers used markers to make check marks in the columns if they knew some information in that category. And then they all gathered around different posters and shared the information that they knew about each student and asked questions about the ones that they didn't. So they were able to engage in personal reflection after the process and began connecting more with students between classes or other available times. So all of this together contributed to a community in which students felt seen and cared for. And I thought that was really a beautiful thing. I really loved it. And I wish more schools would do that. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about how some kids just fall through the cracks. If you're quiet, if you're shy, if you keep your head down, but you get good grades, you just kind of fly under the radar And maybe there's more going on and they could use some support, but you would never know. Well, it reminds me of, I've talked about her before, but Sasha Long from the Autism Helper. Mm. I know I've heard her say that as special education teachers, you have to be, I don't know what she says, the spokesperson or the PR team for your class. And I took that on when I was listening to her podcast a lot. When I worked at a school, I had a nonverbal student who maybe outwardly with the behaviors that he exhibited and, you know, some of his sensory issues, a lot of the school probably didn't see him the way that I saw him. And I felt like it was my job, like I was his PR rep going around and being like, you wouldn't believe what he can do, you know, telling everybody, telling his teacher for next year, oh my gosh, you're going to love this kid. You have no idea. He does this and this and this, you know, you kind of have to spread that awareness if when they're out in a situation like an assembly or in the cafeteria, they're dysregulated. So people don't see what you see, but it does, it helps to just share and, you know, because not everybody knows your kids. Yeah. Wow. I love that. You could add PR to your list of abilities. (laughs) Job description. It's important to realize that every student's success relies on all of us modeling, teaching, encouraging, and providing opportunities to build healthier systems of support in every school. So we really need to incorporate social emotional learning into everything we do at school. Everybody should be practicing it with their students every day in every way. And again, we also need to be trauma aware. So together we can create a culture of friendship, 
strong working relationships, and a safe place for dealing with emotions. We may need to put extra emphasis on routines and rituals for students with ACEs. We also might need to slow down the curriculum for students who are just becoming more able to use their cognitive skills because maybe their brains have been bound up by emotion they could never handle before. But overall, a good question to ask yourself is, do we want our schools to be pain-based or brain-based? I feel like that's a really good question to ask. And at the end of the chapter, the author has some more resources. So if you're interested in going deeper with social emotional learning, go ahead and check that out. There's also resources at the very back of the book after the index. So Laura, now that we are completely done with social emotional learning and the brain, I thought we could kind of chat about our takeaways from the book and how you can apply it as a speech therapist. Well, I didn't write out a list of specific strategies, but just off the top of my head, this really made me think about the way I interact with and respond to the kids I work with. You know, she gave so many strategies and suggestions for how to show empathy and how to build those relationships. And I just feel a lot more confident in the way that I'm going to interact with kids moving forward. I am obviously going to be using a lot more teaching about emotions. You know, every book we've read pretty much has told us how important it is for kids to have those words for what they're feeling and how that integrates their brain, helps them calm down, helps them make better decisions. So I'll be doing a lot of that The other thing I just was thinking as we wrapped this book up was how grateful I am for Marilee Springer for sharing this with us. I think that her passion for being a teacher and working with kids really shone through. You know, when you read her stories, some were funny, some (laughs) were just really touching, some were sad, but overall, you just, you really got this feeling that this is a person who really, really cares and who really found her true vocation and passion, her passion. Yeah. (laughs) So I just, I appreciated it. It's just inspiring for us as people who work with kids to read and, you know, get this wisdom from the people who have gone before us. Absolutely. I was thinking about that too. Like one of the things that was my big takeaway was how Marilee made it seem pretty easy to do these things. So it's not really harder to incorporate a lot of this into what we do as speech therapists. It can be fun. It can be easy. It can be really simple if you're just thinking about things like even greeting each student by name when they just walk into the speech room or different classroom routines that can bring like the sense of joy. And so much of what we do, if you don't inject a lot of fun into it, can just be pretty routine and not in a good way, just kind of especially like Arctic where you're just drilling. So I like this emphasis on with just a little bit of creativity, you can make a really big impact with your students. Yeah, I liked that a lot. And I really like the idea of teaming that she talked about because I thought that would be easy for us to do as speech therapists, just make each speech group a team, Laura, like you talked about. Yeah. And even just now talking about this, I'm like, you can make it so fun. You can make it a big competition you could have a big scoreboard on the wall where each yes. team, it doesn't even have to be like goal achievement. Maybe it could be based on attendance or something. You know, how often have you come to speech or, you know, kindness? If you see kids being really kind to each other in groups, they could earn an extra point. It could just be, oh. I think the sky's the limit when we think about teaming in our speech groups. Yeah. Maybe it would result in like more speech buy-in, which would be great, you know? Mm-hmm. 
We all know those kids who are super competitive. So I think that's for them. <laughs> yeah. No, some of the things just thinking about, I mean, speech is such a special time and it is fun, especially when you have, you're bringing kids together that maybe they were in class together in second grade, but now in third grade, they're in separate classes. And this right. is their time where they get to see their friends from yeah. their old class. And, you know, she's, she said, even on the teams, you could have the team name, you can have special handshake. And I think it'd just be so fun for kids that are in a group to when they see each other on the playground at recess to even have a little handshake <laughs> and be like, oh, she's in my she's on my speech team. Oh, what a fun way to turn because I know so many kids when they get a little bit older, speech becomes like an embarrassing thing for them. Yeah. But it would be fun to have to see them have a little pride or and I don't know, I was thinking about how I had some groups that would stay consistent year over year, mm -hmm. maybe a group of our kids or something, or fluency kiddos that just kind yeah. of are the same age, and they're always in the same group. I think that would be great too. Yeah. They're like you guys have been working together for three years. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so sad when they get to middle school if they're embarrassed to go to speech and you're like, wait, four years ago, <laughs> speech was so special. <laughs> it's me. It's your friend. <laughs> it is hard. I wanted to say that the very last chapter of this book dovetailed perfectly into our book for next month. Ooh. We're reading Take Time for You, Self-Care Action Plans for Educators by Dr. Tina Bogren, which we've been mentioning in our giveaway. And Marilee's really pointing out at the end that it's so important to take care of yourself before you can take care of your students. And we all hear that all the time. But next month, we're really going to be diving into practical things you can do, suggestions you can do to take care of yourself so that you can show up for your kids in the way that you want to. So I'm so excited. Sorry if you have more to say about social emotional learning, but I'm just really excited to start this book because I think we all, you know, we hear a lot about self-care, but I've seen really, really wonderful things written about this book. So I'm excited to read it. Me too. And I also wanted to point out, even though this book was specifically written for educators and people who work in a school setting, I think there's going to be takeaways for everybody, even parents. So keep listening because I think everybody can benefit from self-care and parents. You guys still need to show up for your kids too. So maybe listen in and see if there are some self-care tips you can take away to help yourself when life gets stressful. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, we're really looking forward to it. And thank you everyone for being on the journey with us as we read Social Emotional Learning and the Brain. Stick with us as we talk about our next book, all focusing on self-care. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 